This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. It's easy to take the weird for granted, to think that everything you've done in your life is completely normal. Then one day you start telling stories and your psychologist says, man, I'm surprised you're not more screwed up than you are. And that's why I write. Because I can't be the only one feeling this way, and someone has to say that. And with that, welcome, Doug Lane. Thank you for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You are welcome, and I am excited to hear your story. So let's not hesitate. Let's get started at the very beginning. Can you share with us a little bit about growing up, what life was like for you as a child and your family? Um, sure. Uh, I was the youngest child in a uh, Navy family. My dad was a naval aviator, and um, he finished off the last part of his career uh, at Naval Air Station Kingsville in Kingsville, Texas. Um, he was a South Texas kid. My, uh, my mom was a, a South Texas kid, so they wanted to settle near family. And Kingsville is kind of an interesting spot because it has a huge Mexican population. Um, then it has the Navy base and a university and the King Ranch. So we had ranchers, naval pilots, Mexicans, and uh, and college students. And that was that was kind of the demographic growing up. Like the American melting pot. Yeah, it was great. It was great. In fact, a lot of times when I tell people I'm from Texas, they say, Well, you don't you don't really have an accent. And I said, Well, that's because I had grew up with the military accent. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You get the military folks from all over and all of their accents sort of bleed together. And there's this sort of uh, homogenized, generic uh, military accent. Now, the Texan comes out when I sing and the Texan comes out when uh, <laughs> when I've maybe had a little bit too much to drink. But other than that. Well, know. let's talk a little bit about your dad, a naval aviator. That's kind of a cool title, isn't it? Well, especially if you ask him. Um <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, he was a he was a pilot. He flew um, S twos or S threes. Um, he um, he became an officer. I want to say in like nineteen sixty nine and retired in in eighty nine. Um, but yeah, I mean, he did his fair share of you know of flying of of uh, pilot instruction of aircraft carriers, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I grew up around aviators and. They all think that they're the most amazing thing in the world. <laughs> I think they're pretty amazing. I mean, you can't help when you see a fighter jet fly overhead. Or did you have the, uh, when they did the anniversary for the air the air refuels, did that fly over you a week or no. so ago? Okay. It flew right over my house. I mean, it was, I swear it was just a few hundred feet up really? in the air. And I just thought, you can't help but think you're a badass when you're flying one of those. I mean, how can you it's not? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. It was amazing. Was your dad gone a lot? Um, yes. Although by the time, uh, by the time I 
came along he was he was uh out of a lot of that part of his career um and so i remember i remember him doing um a six month tour of duty in diego garcia which is off it's an island in the middle of the pacific ocean uh and i want to say i was maybe five or six when that happened but i mean i was what seven years old when he retired so i missed out on the majority of that my brother and sister you know were with him you know when uh you know they got stationed in the philippines and he did several tours on different aircraft carriers and so that was that was more normal for them but yeah i missed out on most of that you said you come from a naval family were there others in the navy as well well, it's a well, a naval family in the sense that my dad was in the navy, but we, but uh, you know, my so one of my uncles uh, was also a, a naval aviator. He flew spy uh, spy planes. Uh, my grandfather um, on my mother's side, um, he was a tank driver in World War II, so Army. But uh, but yeah, there's there's a lot of military in our. Why did you join the military? Was that something you wanted to do? growing up or one day you thought hey i'm gonna join the military what's that all about honestly um i had every intention of specifically not joining the military um and uh the the the, the recruiter was really effective that's all, <laughs> that's the best way to say it the recruiter got me um so uh, what happened was there was the this um this army band recruiter that was coming through and doing tours and all of the different band programs and you know and i thought it was kind of silly so i just kind of made jokes about it and uh he made a comment well you know it's really prestigious it's really hard to get in anyway you probably you know it's probably not even worth the time and that that hit my ego so hard <laughs> you know because then i wanted to prove that i could do it and um the so the the regular recruiter um was required to do all the screening and he just fed my ego the whole way this you know 17 year old kid and 18 year old kid uh you know it was things like they had to ask some music theory questions uh, up front you know and they were all softball questions like um like how many how many flats are in the key of a flat you know things like that that's not and a softball not, question uh, for me doug <laughs> well okay but for for a lifelong musician they're pretty understand but um so i would knock out these questions and he would oh wow you really know your stuff you know and so he's like well you know i know you're not going to join i know you're not going to join but what if you just came by and took a practice asvab just to see how you did and i scored it and he's like holy smokes i didn't know the scores went that high and i'm just eating it up i'm just you know um uh he was a and so he took me into the real ASVAB, and I did the audition, and um, I actually failed the audition by a hundredth of a point on a on a four point scale. And the the recruiter looked at me, and he goes, "You know what? I know you're going to go home, and you're going to learn one more scale, or you're going to practice this one thing, and I'm going to have to come back here in two months and do this whole thing again. And I just don't want to bother with that, so I'm just going to give you the extra point." <laughs> Now tell me about what does it mean to be in a military band? I mean, yeah. you joined specifically to be in the military band and let's back up a little bit and tell me what your background is in music. I know a little bit, but maybe what kind of instruments were you playing? How old were you when you started? 
my earliest musical memory was about three years old and uh, my my parents took me to see the the college symphony and i rolled up the the program like a baton and was mimicking the you know so i was i've always been drawn to it my my mom said that um that i would always uh when she was pregnant with me that i would always kick in time with the the music that they were listening to or whatever um so it's always been in my blood uh about six years old started on um piano lessons with a woman named nina droth and um she she was president of the chopin society in corpus christi and um she was a good teacher uh and then some tragedy hit my family about you know age seven and i you know i quit piano for a while um picked up saxophone when i went into middle school and a little bit of piano again once i discovered that i wasn't athletic and needed a way to meet girls <laughs> and um hey, i'm telling you I, I yet i could sing and i could play piano and these choir girls they would just like sit by the piano and you know, I'd play like Phantom of the Opera and I'd have like 20 Christines to my one Phantom, you know, so it was, it was a good deal. <laughs> Had to do something. I wasn't an athlete for sure. Um, but yeah, and then I joined uh, I joined the army as a as a saxophonist and uh, picked up guitar you know, towards the end of that. Um, what does that mean? Get... What doesn't I mean, what do you do? You're not there to fight. What is your role? So the primary mission of the military bands yeah you're there primarily as a musician but everyone goes through basic training and everyone's a soldier first so we had to i had to go through basic training had to go through all of the weapons qualifications we were expected to do all of the the normal army stuff that everyone else does the pt the qualifications and the you know testing and all that kind of stuff um but we provide uh, a ceremonial function. So we, we play at all of the different, like a uh, change of command ceremonies and parades and things like that. And a PR function. So we'll play in the community and it kind of gives a, um, I don't know, just makes the, the military look good, uh, especially if we actually sound good. And, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, there's a diplomatic aspect of it too. You know, I was, we were stationed in, I was stationed in Germany and so we would play at the consulate and we'd play, we'd do uh, performances representing the military in, in different parts of Europe. You know, for example, there was a, uh, there was an event at a city in, um, in France. And I can't remember what, the, I can't remember the name of the city offhand, but they were having a, an anniversary of their liberation uh, during World War II. And so they wanted the American band there. And so we stood as kind of representatives in that case. Um, of the of the military and we entertained them and they were very gracious and yeah so that, that's that aspect now in times of uh in times of war um and i'm not sure if this is still the case because you know 20 years ago is 20 years mm -hmm. things change but um the military bands in times of war are assigned to augment the the military police in securing in in uh, securing and defending the like division headquarters so we glorified glorified guard duty and and such, but you know we were we were out there. We were doing the convoys. We were out there doing guard duty and inspecting the trucks and all that sort of stuff. We weren't kicking indoors in in Iraq, but how long did you have to practice? You have to practice every day. Where depend? I guess it depends on what you mean. Um, in order to get in the military, you have to be able, in, in order to get into one of the military bands, you had to play at a level that was about, um, 
sophomore year in college as a as a music major. Um, the school of music that we went through six months long, and those were super super long long days of of music. I mean, we would we do PT in the morning, and then our day would start at seven thirty and go until about three thirty. And in that and in that time, we would have you know concert band rehearsals, jazz band rehearsals, music theory, ear training learning how to maintain our instruments. Um, and then we'd end, end every day with uh, with drill band or marching band. Um, and then in addition to that, we had to practice two to three hours a day uh, in addition. So that's a lot of music for six mm-hmm. months. Um, and one of the things that they're training you for specifically is um, sight reading. Because so much of the job, so much of the job is, hey, we have a gig. Um, here's your music. We start in five minutes. Go for it. Um, in fact, my my very first official gig with uh, with the First Armor Division Band was a televised gig. I don't even I don't even know what the the specific event was, but it was a little weird. But it was a televised event, so they had me mic'd. Um, I hadn't seen the music yet. I hadn't touched a sax in in four weeks because I had just arrived and they hadn't issued me one yet. Um, never seen the music. It had some custom edits. They had a microphone on me. It was televised and I just had to do it. That's really scary. I played the piano for a little bit and just to have them give you a piece of music and (laughs) that's not an easy thing. Go, just go. No, it's, it's not. And, and that, and that's really what a lot of their training is, is geared towards is so that you can just pick up and go in a moment's notice. Um, and that, that happened, um, that happened a fair amount. That happened a a pretty fair amount, um, where we would show up somewhere and, and maybe it's not even like a brand new song. Maybe it's like, uh, you know, I'm playing second alto saxophone and the first player is sick. (laughs) So now I got to hop over and read a new part. Just got to do it. What do you think music brings to the military? Um, I think the biggest thing is, well, tradition, I think, is a big part of it. Um, there is there is a long and dedicated history going back centuries of music in uh, in military contexts. in um in revolutionary settings, for example, it was common for the bands to set up on the side of the parade field uh, on the side of the field where the armies are fighting each other and uh, and perform music to kind of boost the morale of the of the people um there's a famous quote i want to say it's the early 20th century but there's a famous quote and i can't remember the general who said it but he said um if the trombone player next to you gets shot just just uh, play louder with gusto or something <laughs> you know have you played at any of these events where you really see it touches someone well, of course, of course. I mean, that's that's a big part of music. But I think also in Iraq, uh, in addition to the ceremonial and the traditional thing, one of the big things we were able to do was provide them with a sense of relief. You know, for a two or three hour show, they could just forget where they were. I mean, I remember one of our one of the fun parties that we did. Uh, we got invited out to do a uh, to play at a pool party in in Baghdad at one of Saddam's palaces oh wow for this like infantry unit that had secured it and they had a big swimming pool and so 
you know, we got to set up and perform for them. And, you know, and it, and it had that sense of relief. Um, I also out there, I did uh, funerals. Um, that was another function I did because I was a, a pianist as well um, and was tied in closely with the chaplains. So it happened a few times that they needed a pianist to come out for one of these um, troop funerals and I'd go out and play a, a hymn and as far as music moving people I think nothing does it more than taps oh of course. You hear, yeah you hear the bugler playing taps the more that you hear it at a at a military funeral it just it just wrecks you it just have you played it. it at a funeral uh well I mean I, I've I've pl- I mean I've played it but but never at a funeral context because that's always on a bugle or a trumpet so the so, so officially no but um, but the way, I don't know if you've ever been to a, a funeral with the, the actual troops where they do like the roll calls and stuff. I haven't. And that's one of the most brutal emotional experiences I've ever, I've ever seen. So the, so what happens at these funerals is that the, the first sergeant will call them to attention and, um, he'll, he'll start doing a, a roll call and, um, you know, he'll say, you know, Staff Sergeant Johnson, here, First Sergeant, you know, Sergeant Baylor, here, First Sergeant, Private, whatever his name is, and it'll go silent, and he'll repeat the name, Private so-and-so, Private, and they give the full name, and then turn around and salute, and that's where, that's where they start playing taps, is after the unanswered roll call. So it, it's, it's a moment to mark specifically a hole in the line. And that's something that, that a lot of people will never get to see that. Uh, but it, so when I hear, when I hear taps, when I hear taps played, I hear that silence, you know, I hear the the missing name in the roll call. That mini series band of brothers. Have you seen that? Yes. So what you do takes on a whole different meaning. You're literally a band of brothers and sisters with yeah. the people that you play with. Do you have a special relationship or did you have a special bond with those people that was really strong? Because you hear that over and over with the people that you serve. It's a kind of relationship that you can't comprehend that you don't understand unless you are in that situation. Yeah, sure. I think that anytime, anytime you go through um, a traumatic or, or high stress event with other people it's gonna it's gonna naturally bond you and the people that were in that band with us we a lot of us still stay in touch you know if we aren't directly communicating we at least you know keep track of what's going on with each other um and what's funny is is we don't always necessarily like each other but i'm pretty sure but i'm pretty sure that any of us would do anything for each other you know yeah I mean, there there have been times over the years where someone would uh, would post, you know, Facebook's been great for getting in touch with these folks. Someone would post, "Hey, you know, I'm going through this difficulty. You know, can move? Can some movers show up? Is there anyone can show up?" And people will, you know, show up. Uh, there was a chance I had a few years ago to help the sister of one of these people I served with, and. Um, she was in the National Guard, so she was deployed, and her house was in a flood range, and I happened to be within drive drivable distance to help, you know, get her house packed up. 
and I think that I think that anyone in that unit would do the same thing for for any of us. You were in Germany, then you were in Iraq. Were you prepared for Iraq? Yes and no. Uh, I think that by the time we deployed, we were really, really eager to just be there. And we got there. We got there pretty early in the whole Operation Iraqi Freedom thing. We got there uh, three months after it started, or two months mm. after it started. So there was like the initial invasion, uh, which was the First Marines and Third Infantry Division of the Army. So we were we came in to relieve the Third Infantry Division. So we were we were there right in the beginning. So there were things that that we were we were just eager to get to. Um, we didn't we didn't really have any of the um like some of the some of my friends and colleagues that are that have been in more like action oriented uh, combat oriented units i mean they talked about you know seeing the bodies blown everywhere and we were fortunate we didn't have to deal with any of that um i think for me the daily rocket attacks um that's real that was really unnerving um i think i wasn't prepared for some of the bad leadership that I saw out there. But as far as like, as far as, far as you know, the, the living in tents and living with sand and the heat and we, we had a pretty good idea at that point of what we were getting ourselves into. And so in a way it was kind of a, a welcome relief to just get to it. Mm. We had spent so many months preparing. Did you lose anybody close to you or know of any people that were lost? that kind of shocked you or wow this is real well i mean so no one no one in our in our immediate units were uh were injured at all uh, we were very very fortunate in that yes. regard because we were doing a ton of convoys and and uh yeah as i said the rockets were coming in every day and fortunately they had terrible aim so um you know, we were we were fine that being said there were people who lived with us that we didn't necessarily know. And I said lived with us. I mean, you got to remember this in the context of like several thousand soldiers. So someone you might see, you know, and now they're gone. And there were, there were several deaths that really stuck out. Like the first death that, um, that we experienced over there was a 19 year old uh, soldier. And uh, I don't, I don't remember his name, but he was 19 years old. And of all the stupid things to die from in Iraq, he died from pneumonia pneumonia in the pneumonia. heat was it in the heat or was it in the winter it was in the heat how did that it was happen in the heat. and that's and 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 that's a big part of why they didn't figure out what it was because it didn't make sense that he would have pneumonia at that point and wow well the medical care we had out there really sucked the uh the physician's assistants that we had we called we we all called him dr death because it was um there was there was an incident i remember where uh, a humvee flipped over or a humvee got I don't know if it got, I think it collided with a tank, like it had one headlight and people were immediately injured and there was a call for him to come out and he took the time to like shave. So yeah, I mean, yeah, so medical stuff was, was scary out there. That kind of indifference, that was hard. That was shocking. Some of the, a lot of the things though, that surprised me in Iraq were actually really positive things. Um, for example, the Iraqi workers that we had working with our unit. They were they were amazing guys. I absolutely loved these guys. And uh, when we first arrived there, our food situation sucked. Um, we basically had a couple of MREs and hot water because we didn't have any 
there was no refrigeration there was no ice there was none of that so the 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 plastic water bottles that we would get would boil on the pallets you would just look over and you could see them boiling and um we were all kind of i won't go i won't go so far as to say malnourished but we certainly weren't well nourished and so these iraqi guys would go home and they would tell their wives about it and on more than one occasion they came back with a truck full of fruit fresh fruit or baked chickens or almost every day their wives would bake us these trash bags full of fresh bread and um i think that that if you're if you haven't been over there it's really easy to to just paint the whole population as enemies but the overwhelming majority of the people that i met there were some of the nicest people i've ever met just interestingly enough the uh out of the 15 or 18 guys that that were regularly working with my unit um only one was muslim the rest were all christians you know um and they gave us a bible in their language you know not that we can read it but it was kind of cool to have it and uh you know they would come to our church services and it was neat how do you feel or what are your thoughts you were over there at the beginning Mm -hmm. we're there for 20 years and now we know where we are or where they are. Do you have feelings or thoughts on that about everything that happened there with you there, with everything that you saw, with the funerals that you're talking about? And now here we are. Um, I have very similar feelings about Iraq that I do about Afghanistan, even though I, I, I was never in Afghanistan. But um, I think in both cases, I, well, there's there's a lot of thoughts, there's a lot of feelings, but I think that in both cases, there needed to be an exit. We couldn't stay there forever, but the right. manner in which the exits happened was shameful. I, I think that 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 even leaving behind some amount of a small training force or support force or something like that to assist the local militaries would have gone a long way. When Obama pl- pulled everyone out of Iraq and then ISIS just swooped in you know they started rounding up all of the christians painting the the letter uh well the equivalent of our letter n uh, on their doors to mark them as being you know from the nazarenes the like a scarlet letter yeah right or like the star of david and they would mark them with that before they dragged them out and killed them in brutal ways um and i became a christian over there you did so yeah um, so I always felt an affinity to the church there, and uh, that was incredibly hard to to watch and know that like there's nothing there's nothing I can do there's nothing any of us can do to help them. So I think that the with the way that the withdrawal happened caused a lot of the aftermath. It was more important politically to get everyone out. Well, I'm sure yeah. you have to feel pain for the people who, when you were there, they had hope. And now that hope has just been ripped out and it's just as bad as it was before, maybe even worse. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what the conditions are over there right now. I do know that when we first arrived, you know, we were, we were greeted with all kinds of celebration and, and cheering, you know, and, you know, we would be, we were, we were very often thanked and yeah, there were insurgents there, but I mean, and the insurgents are the ones that, that, that make the news. Um, but you don't see all the people that are, you know, inviting us over for dinner or 
like I said, baking us fresh bread every day. You don't see those people. Um, you know, I was in I was in the country when um, Saddam was captured, and the pro America stuff that was going on was was nuts in response. The celebratory gunfire was all over the place, um, which takes a little getting used to, but you know. Uh, and I was there in country when uh, Uday and Kusei, his sons, were killed. Yeah, and same thing. Um, you know, lots of celebration. So what happened between then? And I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't there. I, I you know, but um, I believe I've seen part of these people, and I believe, I, I believe that they have the potential to make something beautiful out of it if they can ever get out from the situations that they're in. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about your transition to Christianity? What was that? Sure. Um, so I was actually raised, um, so I was raised in a Catholic family, but when I say I wasn't a Christian, I mean, I, I, I think that, that it's, it's possible to be raised in a religion and not be a believer. Of course. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, in my case, it came, um, it came through two, two, two veins. First of all, that, uh, I kept getting into arguments with, with other Christians, who were challenging me on, on my uh, Catholic faith. And they would point out that certain things weren't in the Bible. And so at one point, I just became determined that I was going to prove everything that I said I believed by the Bible. I was just going to sit down and read it and find all the proof and all the evidence, you know, right there. Um, and that led me to a lot of questions. So I wrote my, the priest I had grown up with back home and asked him all these questions because I was sitting in Iraq and in Kuwait at that point, I didn't, you know, long days of doing absolutely nothing in the sweltering heat. What else is there to do but sit and read the Bible, you know? Yeah. Um, anyway, he sent me a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and so which is like their their book of all the rules and all of the statements. And I compared the two side by side, and there were a lot of problems. And that really led, that really was the start of the journey of me kind of digging in and saying, well, maybe I just need to set aside what I was taught and let's just read the Bible and see what it says. Um, and somewhere in there, somewhere in there, I had a, 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 a light bulb go off and it was, um, it was this idea that I could never be good enough to please God. Um, and that was, that sounds horrible. That sounds really awful to say, but it, it was honestly, it was one of the happiest moments of my life. And the reason is I, I didn't have the vocabulary, uh, the theological vocabulary to experience, to, to explain this at this time. But what I was experiencing was a concept of grace, this idea that uh, that God's favor is it's an unmerited choice that he makes towards us. It has nothing to do with our, of what we bring to him. He simply chooses to forgive us through Jesus. And uh, I mean, that was life changing. So from my perspective, all I understood was, you know, I can sit here and try and try and try and try and try, and it's never going to be good enough, or I can rest in him and he's good enough for me. It sounds like it almost liberated you. Hugely, huge. And, and you know, of course, it didn't fix me immediately. I, I was still kind of an ass uh, at that point. Um you know, I, I had a lot of growing. I was a newlywed and and uh, we weren't in a good place at that point already. Um, 
you know, and she was a soldier too. And so we were out there deployed together as newlyweds and, um, that's hard. It was hard. Yeah. Well, and especially since, you know, we'd been married, what, almost six months at that point when we got deployed and we're at that point in history, um, married couples didn't get to live together. So we had to live as newlyweds in different tents with a whole bunch of other people. So 15 months of the first two years of our marriage, we're living in a war zone in different tents uh, with other people. Does that happen a lot where married couples are deployed together to the same yeah. area? Yeah, it's some some career fields more than others. I mean, with the band, there's only so many places they can put musicians, you know. Um, but it, but it wasn't super uncommon, and um, it was one or two. Uh, I don't know how to how to say this, but like when we were with uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom, they didn't have numbers yet, so we were like OIF one, but they didn't actually have a number. So somewhere around OIF three, I think they started having these trailers where married couples could live together in the in the trailers. Uh, but that wasn't a thing when we were there uh Talk about there was stress on a marriage well yeah and there was there was another married couple in our unit um that were out there together uh and there was uh there were a couple others who were married to people in other units but the same division and they were both out there and all of us having to live separately tell me about 2016 okay when faces was selected i'm reading this just so i can get it right doug was selected by Operation Encore, which is an organization that brings together singers, songwriters from across the country who are part of the military and veteran communities. What is that about? But I guess before we do that, let's back up. When So you were in the Army for four years and then you got out. Right. Okay. Right. What did you do after the Army? And did you get out because you're just like four years is enough? I don't want to do this as a career. What I would have said to you, if you asked me that question on the day that I got out, was that I was tired of all the army BS and I just didn't want to do it anymore. Um, with 20 years hindsight, I think that it was a combination of a few things. I think that, yes, there were some major, major, major leadership issues in my unit um, that were toxic, that were awful. Um, but my response was to develop a really terrible attitude, which then that compounds things. So like you have bad leadership and then you have a bad attitude. Those, those two don't ever go together well. Um, so honestly, I think that part of it was a lot of immaturity on my part on why I got out. Um, you were 22, I, 23? Uh, yeah, I would have been 22. Okay. Still young. Still, yeah, still very young. In fact, and, I think it's and, like 22 uh, my, my, or 23 that they tell you that a man's mind is fully developed. So your mind wasn't right. even fully yeah, developed, sure. maybe, your brain. Sure. But that being said, I mean, there definitely was some stuff in our unit that was very, very bad and very wrong. Um, if I had stated, so my my wife was still in at that point. Um, she enlisted a year after I did, so she still had time on her contract. And we, so I, w- I got to be a military spouse uh, also. Um, we, we settled in, uh, at, uh, Fort Sam Houston in San Antonio, Texas. And, um, honestly, I think that if I had experienced a couple of the bands that she got to be in after, uh, after I got out, I might've stayed in for my whole life. But, uh, at that point I had kind of burned my bridges and, uh, 
I had already moved on, but I didn't know what I wanted to do yet. Um, eventually, I made my way into into ministry um, as an associate pastor uh, at a church up in northern Michigan and then down at another church in, in Texas. Um, but it took a lot of self-discovery to figure out what I wanted to do. I tried a bunch of different jobs. I didn't just didn't know what I wanted to do. Did you carry any baggage with you after you got out of the military? Was there something that you brought with you that you had to work on? No, I'm perfect. <laughs> well, so am um, I. We must yeah, be the yeah, only two perfect people here. That's, that's right. Yeah, of course. No, um, because there's always something, it seems, everyone that I've talked to, there's something that you bring with you, whether it's PTS or, I mean, whatever it is. It seems like there's always you something. Know, I, don't, I, I don't know. Um, I mean, there's some things that I've carried with me through the years, but I mean, you have to understand that, as I said, I grew up in a military family with mil- with military roots in a military town in a military and went right into the military after high school. It's military, 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 my whole life until I lived in Michigan for the first time. And that was, that was uh, living in this, like this small town in Northern Michigan was the first time in my life that I wasn't in a military community. Um, so I don't know how much that really, I mean, I, I dealt with a lot of the same stuff that, that, you know, everyone talks about, about, you know, slamming doors, you know, and, and, um, and all of that. And, you know, there's still a little bit of a fear of, uh, or discomfort around things like, uh, uh, fireworks, for example, okay. you know, well, what um, about this? Did the military teach you? any lessons that you have grown from? Of course. Um, well, I think that, I think the military really shaped my sense of, uh, of punctuality and time and commitment. And um, I think that as a band leader uh, myself, you know, with my, with my own, with the real Doug Lane band that I, I, I have um, a lot of the lessons I learned in how the military bands function and operate, how they book, their shows, how they plan for them. Um, that organization uh, has passed in pretty well uh, in, into my my private music career. Um, yeah, I don't I don't know how else to answer that. That's fine. Your wife stayed in one year after you, or did she reenlist? Both. Um, so she she extended her enlistment on the condition that we would stay in uh, Fort Sam Houston. And the army agreed to that and then immediately broke the agreement and assigned her to go to Fort Benning, Georgia. And uh, we tried to, we tried to get out of that. She tried to defer her orders. Um, and a four-star general overrode her declining of that orders. So we had to go to Georgia and um, yeah. And then she got pregnant with our son, Patrick and decided that enough was enough. And she took a pregnancy discharge. She had already completed her initial tour. So she got all of her benefits and, um, yep, yeah, got out and that's, that's when we headed up North. Okay. Well, let's take it to 2016 and tell me about this right. operation encore, what that entails. So operation encore originally started with the intention of becoming a record label. Um, they're now a nonprofit, but they weren't at that point. Um, and I was introduced to them by a buddy of mine named, uh, Andrew Wiscom, who's a, uh, he was an army sniper and he's, a fantastic songwriter in his own right. Um, 
but they were they were looking for songs for their second album release which was which ended up being called monuments and uh, after hearing his story about how he applied i just decided to throw it out on a whim and, and it was the first validation i really had as a songwriter um they selected my song uh faces which uh which was originally about i had originally written it about um my grandfather and his struggles with alzheimer's hmm. uh, and they liked the song they 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 uh, they liked it overall. They liked the melody. They liked uh, the kind of the arrangement, and they worked with me on on kind of improving it. But it didn't really fit the theme of what they were trying to do with the album. So they helped me with some of the, some rewrites and kind of changed the meaning. So it was more focused on like a PTS uh, kind of a PTSD meaning. And you know, I mean, they got to do what they got to do. They had um, at the time I was trying to go the route of being more of a songwriter. Uh, rather than a performer and one of the things they always say is it's better to ha- to rewrite and get something on an album than to stick to you know stick to your guns and have the song skip so I'm like okay you know I'll do whatever I have to do what what happened was we got it recorded and I'm still very proud to be part of that and everything that happened but that got me back into the performance space and and I remembered for the first time in years how much I loved being on stage and the more I performed that song, the more I wished that I had never changed it. So when it got time to do my first set of uh, recordings for my first EP, um, that was one of the first things I decided on was that we were going to do faces, but we were going to do it with the original the original lyrics. And um, that's been a good decision uh, overall. Um, Operation Encore since then has uh, shifted. They've become a nonprofit. And they continue to bring on new artists. Um, I left the organization a couple of years ago. Just felt like it was time to to move on and stand on my own. Um, but we're still very friendly, you know, with the org, and they'll still promote my stuff some. And how did you get your moniker, the real Doug Lane? Not just Doug Lane, but the real Doug Lane. I was an, I was being a wise ass. That's really all there is to it. Um. So. The very first time I ever used it was unrelated to music at all. Uh, a friend of mine just was convinced I absolutely had to get a Twitter account. I had no interest in getting a Twitter account, you know. But at the time, they weren't doing the blue check marks. And so all the celebrities were doing like real so-and-so, like real yeah. Donald Trump, or whatever. So I thought it'd be funny for me as a nobody to put the real Doug Lane as my Twitter. And I used it for like two days and completely forgot about it. Oh. <laughs> um, I just it was a joke I, I i had no interest i didn't want to do any of that so i i had it and i forgot it um fast forward a year or so and i get booked for my first solo gig uh performing my own original songs the friend of mine who owned the venue booked me and she you know she did the facebook event and linked it to doug lane music and um that was a guy in iowa who had nothing to do with me and um so she had completely linked me to the wrong person so i showed up to i showed up to the gig and i mentioned it to her and she thought it was funny and i thought it was funny so i took a marker and i just wrote the real doug lane on all the posters just as a joke because i figured like five people are going to show up you know who cares got up from the stage i'm like i know there's been some confusion i know there's been some confusion but just be clear i am in fact the real doug lane and that was that was it you know Again, I didn't think anything about it. And two days later, I'm walking down the streets in Provo. And someone who had been at the show that I 
I guess they'd have been at the show. Hey, aren't you the real Doug Lane? And it blew me away that they, you know, completely blew my mind that they would remember that. So that's, it's stuck from there. I'm like, well, I guess I am now. Um, and I had all these ideas about how I was going to incorporate that into my theme and whatever, but honestly, it just, it just is what it is. Tell us about your band. Well, um, so we, we, we were, we're typically accused of being a country band. Uh, I don't know bad? how accurate. <laughs> it's not bad. I just don't know how accurate it is. Like we do some, some music that's very much country. Definitely. Um, some of the stuff we do is more in line with blues or or some classic rock. There's a lot of Pink Floyd influence uh, in the stuff that I write. Love Pink Floyd, uh, but I love Pink Floyd too. Um, in fact, can I tell my... you my very favorite song that they sing is not one that's one of their more well known, which I don't know why, and it's "Learning to Fly." Oh yeah, yeah, that yeah. is my favorite song they have. It's it's certainly one of the better ones in the post Roger Waters era. Yeah. I love that song. Yeah, my 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 husband would probably tell you he likes the early stuff better, of course. Well, it depends on what you mean by the early stuff, because I think that their first six albums sucked. Oh. So. <laughs> I mean, good I on them for keeping him. going. How early? But it wasn't until, been? but really, like they got into to metal, and that was the first one they were like, okay, this is this is sort of their sound. And then they had Dark Side of the Moon, and the four albums, you know, Dark Side of the Moon, Animals, Wish You Were Here, and The Wall. Those yeah. were freaking genius. Yeah. And I hate most of the stuff that came before them. <laughs> What's your favorite song? Do you have one of theirs? Well, I think, I mean, everyone's going to go with uh, Comfortably Numb is one of the greatest. Uh, certainly has my favorite guitar solo of all times in it. Yeah. Uh, David Gilmore was a master of melody uh, with his soloing. Favorites, though, I have is off of their Obscured by Clouds album, um, which, uh, 69, I think it was. So it was one of the earlier ones. But it's a song called Free Four. And uh, Free Four is, it's all about mortality and wrestling with this idea that we're all going to die. <laughs> I'll have to ask my uh, husband about that because he's definitely much more <laughs> versed on Pink Floyd than I am. The opening line in Free Four is, uh, the memories of a man in his old age are the deeds of a man in his prime. Mm. So he really spends the whole time juxtaposing, you know, age uh, and and mortality. And uh, I think that's something that that, that Roger Waters really continue to focus on his whole life was this idea this concept of, of death it just permeates everything uh you know he, he of course his his father was a soldier that he lost in 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 one of the world wars so they are an influence to you still today yeah absolutely the first uh the first song off of my latest album for example it's called uh it's not unusual and that has very 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 strong uh very strong influences from Pink Floyd. We even, I even took the a note from some of their albums and put, you know, it's like a soundtrack in the beginning where it's like birds tweet, tweeting and then a bomb and gunfire. And then that kicks off the song, you know, very Pink Floyd fashion. Uh, and we have the, a really amazing guitar solo on there from um, one of my former guitarists, uh, Caden Thomas. But yeah, they're a huge influence. They were, uh, they were probably my second my second favorite, my second, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? My second biggest influence musically. They were my second love. What's your first? Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Those are two very different sounds, don't you think? 
yeah, they're very different sounds and they're very different approaches, but they're both storytellers. Uh, first and foremost, and and even the country music that I grew up listening to that I really, really loved, you know, was storytellers, first and foremost. I mean, yeah, Will, Willie Nelson has some great songs, but. Uh, what about but Johnny Cash? Like, yeah, I, I was never huge into Johnny Cash. But no, I, I he's a great a storyteller, though, with his songs, isn't he? Absolutely. But I'm talking guys like uh, Robert Earl Keane or Guy Clark or. Uh, Towns Van Zandt or some of these guys that are a little bit lesser known, but they had huge influences on the industry and their songs. And that, that kind of songwriting was really present uh, when I was growing up. Um, Billy Joel, all of his songs, I mean, they are straight out of his life. They're uh, he's narrating people's lives, you know, uh, writing songs about people like every almost every character in his songs is someone that was in his life. And the people feel like real people. You hear about, you know, Brenda and Eddie in Scenes from Time restaurants. It's like, oh, I feel like I know those people. Tells their whole story about how they met young and married fast and divorced fast. And, you know, it's it's storytelling. But then you look on him uh, at Pink Floyd and Pink Floyd's the same thing. They're, they, um, they're, they're a little bit more... Um, Messed up? <laughs> I'm just going to say metaphorical. But sure, messed up works too. <laughs> Just go with messed up but i mean you look at, at uh shine on you crazy diamond oh yeah you know it's shine on you crazy diamond is straight up a song about sid barrett uh their their original lead singer who got way too heavy heavy into drugs and had schizophrenia and um you know and so they're 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 telling stories the wall is an amazing narrative uh if, you know start to finish and uh there's layers that that even now Decades later, after I first heard it, I'm still uncovering new layers of meaning in that work. But it's the story, it's the emotions, the character. You have this this fictional character of Pink, and how he's wrestling with his past and his emotions. And you have the the in the flesh song this, that kind of bookends his reflection. So you, in the beginning, you see him as sort of this self depiction of a Nazi like character, and then it does a flashback, and everything between those two points is just him realizing how messed up he is. I can hear my husband singing a song and like, which one is pink? <laughs> yeah, that's in. Yep. That's off the uh, Wish You Were Here album. That's uh, Have a Cigar. What yeah. kind of stories do you want to share or what kind of stories are you writing about in your music? And what do you want people to get from those stories? Well, on my first album uh, on Water from the Stone, I was largely just, I don't know. I don't know how much narrative there was in that. It was, it, it, I was largely just trying to write songs that people would like, you know. Um, I took a little bit of a, which there's nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, you just write differently. You write differently when you're trying to write songs that are going to get picked up by radio. You just write differently. Um, but with this latest album, this pocket full of pills, it felt like going to confession. I had, I just had a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings that I needed to get off my chest. Uh, and a lot of that centers around um, mental health issues, um, depression, anxiety, um, PTS. Um, I, I've I've dealt with uh, suicidal idea, ideology for 30 years, which is you longer have. than I've been. So it actually predates the military. Um, Do you know where that so, stems from, Doug? 
uh, yeah, it tra- childhood trauma. Um, I mean, we talked about my dad being this this hero, but honestly, my dad was a, was an ass, and uh, um, my childhood was was hor- was was horribly traumatic in in oh. several ways. Um, you know, my mom, my mother was in a um, a severe car accident when I was seven years old, traumatic brain injury, um, and my dad, rather than being around, um, spent as much time away as possible. And, uh, you know, with, with the other woman, uh, whoever that was at the time. And, um, how bad was your mom's the, TBI? What's that? How bad was your mom's TBI? Severe. It, she had a severe, uh, closed brain injury. She was, uh, unconscious for six weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, she, yeah. And when, when she woke up, she was paralyzed on her left side. She did regain she regained, uh, you know, mobility and feeling in, in her left side, but, uh, she was in the hospital for well over six months and probably should have been there longer. Um, so who took but, care of you during that time? Was your dad around or was he gone? He was around in spots, but, uh, for the most part, my, my sister who was a teenager was a, was a big part of that. And my grandfather, my grandparents, um, were the ones that were most present. Uh, so my grand, the grandpa that I wrote about in faces, um, he was a he was a good man and he stepped up in a lot of ways he was he was kind of a father figure for me and do those suicidal thoughts are they like i'm not good enough so my my i wasn't good enough for my dad to stick around or you know you know it's it's interesting because that because no you would think but at least in my experience um and and i and i'll say this that i i about a year and a half to two years ago i i i started some treatment that made a huge difference in, in, in that, uh, did the uh, ketamine treatments. Mm, yes. They've been absolutely, absolutely life-changing, absolutely life-changing. Now, a lot of it was, um, just the idea that the pressure of life was too much. And, and, uh, it's, it's largely just escapism, not being able to, uh, not, not being able to deal, um, not seeing a way out um so i i know i know some people when they're experiencing you know ideation it's more along the lines of well people would be better without me you know or something like that and and i think that creeps in some but um no my my self-destructive stuff was more just an inability to cope with life and reality and and that being said a lot of it is not even i mean what i discovered after i did these ketamine treatments because it was the first time the voices went quiet can you explain to us, because I kind of know, but I I think it's kind of confusing what that therapy is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, l- let me let me let me share this and then I'll get back to what it is and what okay. it does. So after the ketamine treatments for the first time, the that was the first time in my life where I wasn't experiencing um multiple suicidal thoughts a day, if not multiple suicidal thoughts an hour. That's exhausting. And it's exhausting. It is absolutely exhausting. And I would go a few weeks and then all of a sudden I'd have one of these thoughts pop in my head. Cause a lot of times they're just invasive thoughts, flashes of imagery. Uh, it's not that I'm sitting there mulling over. I'm particularly sad. Something just triggers something in me. And all of a sudden I have a mental image of a gun to my head, you know, it comes out of nowhere, but it had been long enough after this treatment that, um, it had been long enough that after this treatment that when that flash happened, it felt weird. It felt unusual to me. Whereas it had just been like normal to everyday thoughts to me before. Now it felt like something invasive. And that gave me a completely different perspective. 
Now, what the ketamine treatment is, so ketamine is a drug that's used um, as, a, uh, as, as a anesthesia for uh, children. It's also used as a street drug uh, because when it's not in the full anesthesia doses, um, it functions as a um, hallucinogen. There's a psycho, psychodelic, psychopathic, I don't know what, I don't know what the word is. Um, and my, my therapist had recommended it for well over a year before I decided to give it a try. And I didn't want to give it a try because I've, I'm not a drug user or never have been. Uh, I mean, at this point, at this point, you know, a few gummies every once in a while, but prior to that, I'd never done anything. I had never even smoked a cigarette in my life. It just, and so I didn't like the idea of using a drug, uh, especially something that, that was going to make, cause these hallucinations or, you know, That's kind is, of scary. It's scary. It was absolutely terrifying. I didn't know what to expect. So what it actually does, though, is it kickstarts something in your brain that restores neuroplasticity, so your brain's ability to learn better. And it actually helps to regrow some of the neural pathways that have been damaged. So with with PTS, one of the things, PTS or depression or any of those things, the the wiring in your brain is actually physically screwed up. You Mm -hmm. can take a brain scan and look at someone and say, oh, you have depression because it shows up on their scans. And uh, ketamine actually helps to regrow some of those and and bring life back to some of those areas. Um, So there's a few ways that it's administered. The VA offers it, I believe, as a nasal spray, uh, which is one of the less effective is my understanding. Um, That's one of the options. Uh, Microdosing through pills is another option. They say that the most effective consistently, um, the one that gets the most best results is an intravenous thing and you go to a doctor's office and they hook you up to an IV and you have a one hour trip where they they give you just a sub anesthesia level and, and it's fun I mean it's it, it's 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 fun it's enjoyable <laughs> I really enjoyed it it's restful it's kind of cool um but the but the you know the thing is is that it seems to me that that all of the effects that you get from it are the side effect rather than the actual effect of the medication because the effect from the medication comes in the days and weeks afterwards. When I went for an initial doctor's consult, one of the things I really appreciated about, about this doctor who ended up treating me, uh, she said, well, don't expect any significant change for the first three sessions. Okay. She said, but if you get to session five and there's no difference, cancel the rest because it's not going to work for you. And I, and I appreciate a doctor who's willing to take money out of their own pocket you know, and say, there's like 30% of people that ketamine just won't work for. So if it's, if it's not working for you, just stop. That's kind of cool. But sure enough, after about the fourth session, what I noticed was that the world just in general felt more vibrant, like even visually, it was like, uh, it's like if you're adjusting the controls on your TV set, and you put it on that vivid mode. Mm -hmm. And that's what the world looked like to me. Um, but I didn't realize that I was feeling different yet. Um, I didn't realize that my wife was actually the one that's keying me into to, there. There was, there's been a change, um, for her. One of the things that she noticed was that I started tackling all of these projects around the house that I had put off for literally years. And I don't know, I didn't know where the motivation had come from. All of a sudden I have all this motivation and energy to do stuff. And, uh, the more that I would do stuff, the more like layers it was, it was like an onion like layers of uh of laziness coming off almost i don't know um, if it's laziness 
Well, I mean, I, that's the best way I can describe right. it. I don't know. I but think the, anxiety and depression puts this cloud over us to the point that it just is a struggle. It's so heavy to even sometimes get up off the couch. Well, sure, sure, sure. Absolutely. absolutely. I just don't have a better term for right. it. So. Well, can I say what a strong woman your wife is? To yeah. be able to stick with you through all of these things that you're going through and to, to still love you and to be by your side. And that says a lot about her. I mean, I'm sure not that you were it, a monster to live really with, does. but and, it can and, be exhausting. Well, it really does. And and the thing is, is, is that, you know, she, she's a combat vet too. So she has her whole laundry list of stuff she's mm-hmm. going through. You know, we, we both came from families uh, of divorce and, trauma. and some degree, you know, some degree of trauma and, and uh, we knew that going in and we just went in with a determination that that uh, divorce was not even worth you know discussing um and we just keep coming back to for better or for worse i know? like that through thick or thin yeah well the thing is the thing is like you know i i've been a i've been a pastor now for 20 years and i've done a lot of weddings and one of the things that i've observed is that for better or for worse, oftentimes the worst doesn't come from outside the marriage. It comes from inside the marriage. Agree. And, and so when you're committing for better, or for worse, it's not just whatever the world throws at me, but when you give me the worst of you, I'm still committing to love you. And I realize, you know, that, 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 you know, everyone who hears that, hears that through different lenses. And there's people who, who went in with the best of intentions and it didn't work out. You know, that happens. But I'm just saying, you know, from 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 our perspective, we've pushed through. We're we're determined we're determined to to make it to the end. What do you want to tell someone who is listening who maybe feels like they are drowning in the depths of anxiety, depression, or suicidal thoughts that there's no way out? I would tell them about the prophet Elijah. That's what I would do. So the prophet Elijah shows up in, in, in first Kings and he immediately goes to battle with this King named Ahab over all the idolatry that's going on. And God does some amazing things through Elijah, just the short list. You know, he uses Elijah to stop the rain and then three years later to call the rain and he calls down pillars of fire and he runs faster than chariot. And he, uh, you know, multiplies, food stocks and all that sort of stuff and then after he's defeated all these prophets right he goes and he encounters the queen and she says may be done to me very severely if by tomorrow you're not also dead basically like i'm gonna kill you by tomorrow or may the gods deal with me very very dearly and elijah's response after everything that he's been everything he's seen god do everything that he's accomplished he runs off into the desert and says, Lord, it's enough. I'm no better than my father's. Just kill me. Now, this is a man who prayed and fire came from heaven. He knows that if he's praying to God, God has the ability to, to answer that prayer and kill him right away. So we have one of the, we have the greatest prophet in, in the Bible experiencing depression and experiencing suicidal ideation. God's response to him, God's response to him is this. He sends an angel to bake a cake of bread, and he tells him to rest. He says, Elijah, eat and rest, because the journey is too much for you. He does that twice. The journey is too much 
for you. So I think that if you're sitting there and you're drowning, I think that first of all, coming to the admission that, yeah, you know what? It is too much. And that's okay. That's one, that's one of the key lessons to take away from that. Second is to take care of your body physically. Rest, eat, wash up, take care of yourself. And realize that the idea that God will give will never give you more than you can handle is a lie from the pit of hell. God often gives us things that we can't handle. And in what he said to Elijah, the journey is too much for you. The thing is, it's too much for us. It's not too much for him. God will never give us more than he can handle. So I think that the, that, that the willingness to admit that it's too much for you is a good step. Because until you can admit that there is a problem, you can't do anything to fix the problem. I think also don't believe the lie that your brain is telling you that you're the only one or that you're alone in it. It feels that way. Our emotions feel real, but they're not true. So later on in that passage, Elijah meets face to face with God on the mountain. And it's this famous passage that everyone quotes out of context with, so, you know, there's a fire, the fire came and God wasn't in the fire. And there was a wind and God wasn't in the wind and he was in an earthquake, but he wasn't in the earthquake and he was a still small voice. Well, the reason why God was in a still small voice in this case was because anything more would have destroyed Elijah. So God comes at him with tenderness. And Elijah pleads his case. And one of the things that Elijah says is he says, I alone am fighting this fight. I'm the only one doing this. I'm the only one standing up for what's right. And so much, so often in depression, like that's how it feels. Like we're the only ones who care. We're the only ones that are struggling in this. And God just says to Elijah, Elijah, I've reserved 6,000 priests you're just not seeing them. They're there. You're not alone in any of this. So I think that I think that looking biblically at, at, at the prophet Elijah gives us so many things. Is, is first of all, we're not. First of all, it is too much for us, and we need to take care of our bodies. But we're also we're not alone, and that God isn't angry at you because of your depression. Like we would expect that God would turn around and say. Well, shame on you, Elijah. Don't. Where's your faith? Pick yourself up by your bootstraps. And he doesn't. He does the exact opposite. He says, man, you're tired. Go get a nap. Here's some bread. That's fantastic. That's great. How many albums have you put out? So far, uh, we've done full, two full albums, uh, one EP, and then a few singles. Mm-hmm. And I have asked you if you might perform one of those selections from your album, correct? Yeah. Which one do you want? (laughs) Whatever you think is fitting is fantastic. Tell us what album it's from and what the selection is called, please. Well, the first selection is called Tuning. (laughs) That might be the best one on the album. It might be, be, yeah. I'm going to play a song called um, Church and Photographs. Um, So you asked asked earlier about the effect of music on other people. And I think this is one that has, um, I've gotten more feedback on this one than any other. This is from my latest album called Pocket Full of Pills. And this is really a 
Pocket Full of Pills. Mm-hmm. So Pocket Full of Pills is another song on the album. And the idea for Pocket Full of Pills was that I I was looking at my stack of medicines one morning. And it just occurred to me how much, how many chemicals I have to put in my body to make me normal. Um, and so Pocket Full of Pills, um, yeah, I could play that for you. I just can't. Doug's looking around for something. I'm looking around for my capo, which oh. I can't find. Um, pocket full of pills. Let me see. I might be able to do it without. I usually play it in a different place, but I can't find my capo to change the thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'll do pocket full of pills. Okay. So, pocket full of pills happens in two different parts, and the first, and it is meant to represent two sides of the struggles of depression. One is the sort of the medicated side that we put forward to everyone where we're smiling but underneath the veneer of the smile there's something else going on and so it's very whimsical in the beginning the second part of the song really hones in on what i believe the inner voice is saying which quite simply is don't give up on me so this is this is pocket full of bills i've got a pocket full of pills for my brain Doctors say it'll help to ease the pain. Somewhere between numb and just insane. Got a pocket full of pills for my brain. There's a thousand tiny voices in my head. Some recall every stupid word I've said. Other voices want to see me dead. A thousand tiny voices in my head. When the morning sun is spilling on the hill. Its rays are piercing through my inner chill. Before the vestiges of feeling cloud my will. I kill them with a pocket full of pills. Don't give up on me. 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 Where can we purchase Pocket Full of Pills? Well, it's available anywhere you stream music. If you want to purchase it, which I certainly appreciate, uh, Bandcamp, um, look for the real Doug Lane. Pocket Full of Pills is on there. Uh, I think you can purchase it still through iTunes. People still do that. But uh, if you don't want to purchase it, and I understand that too, you can stream it on Spotify or Pandora or Apple Music or any of those places. Mm-hmm. it's beautiful doug thank you thank you um do you have time for one more please 
So this is this is the one I was mentioning. This is uh, off the same album. This is called Church and Photographs. And, um, well, you know, I'll just play it first and then we can talk about it afterwards. Daddy was a cheater. Mama always knew. And I could hear them yelling through the door. Brother hid the bruises and numbed them with the booze. And sisters' cries for help were all ignored. But we always smile for church and photographs. Making sure our friends and neighbors always saw us laugh. Plastic smiles and airbrushed faces hide the dirty past. Because we always smile for church and photographs. I was just the youngest, so they all left me alone. But my young ears recorded every word. All of these years later, you'd think that I'd moved on. Sometimes I relive the things I heard. We always smile for church and photographs. Making sure our friends and neighbors always saw us laugh. Plastic smiles and airbrushed faces hide the dirty paths. We always smile for church and photographs. Hiding dirty laundry, it's about the only thing we did. It might help a man save face, but it ain't ever helped a kid. Always smile for church and photographs. Making sure our friends and neighbors always saw us laugh. Plastic smiles and airbrushed faces hide the dirty path. Because we always smile for church and photographs. We always smile for church and photographs. I'm guessing that's autobiographical. Absolutely. That's the most autobiographical song I've ever written. But I also think it's universal what you're singing about, which is how many of us hide behind those smiles and my husband yep. always tells me, you never know what's going on behind closed doors. You think That's someone true. has a perfect life and they may be struggling more than we'd ever guess. 100%. And I think that that's the reason that particular song off this album has really resonated with people. Uh, because I think that there are a lot of folks out there who feel the pressure to always appear perfect, um, who feel the pressure to... Um, to conceal what's, what's really going on. And, and I'm really, 
I mean, it's my own song, but I'm really struck with what I said in the uh, in the in the in the bridge, you know, that um, hiding laundry, hiding dirty laundry, uh, it might help. It might help someone save face, but it's never helped a kid. You know, um, I've encountered so many over the years who either in the moment needed help, didn't believe that anyone cared enough to, to search for it, didn't believe they could get it, didn't believe they deserved help. Or they found out years later and um, or, you know, we found out years later what happened. We we're like, why didn't you, why didn't you tell us? And so there's this fear that if people knew what would go, what was going on, it's going to mess our lives up even, even worse. Um, but at the same time, you know, my sister, you know, when she was a teenager, she taking care of me and watching everything else that was going on in our house. And she actually went to the police in our hometown. She went to them. She told them what was going on. She begged them to take us out of that home. Really? Yeah. And they didn't. They wrote her off as a dramatic teenager. In part because, in part because they knew my dad through his military career, and so I wanted to write that particular song. In part because I'm tired of hiding dirty laundry. At some point, you get tired of 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 everything being hidden and concealed. You know, the only way that that darkness dies is if you drag it into the light. And and it's like the quote you read earlier, you know, I can't be the only one who feels this way. I can't be the only one that's experienced it. And I've discovered that that's the case. That's the case. The more I sing this song, the more I have people come up to me afterwards and say, I feel like you were singing about my home. Maybe we need to talk about it more. Where can we find you on social media? Anywhere on social media, if you just tack the real Doug Lane on it, um, I'm mostly on Facebook. I do I do have like a Twitter account that I'm active on now, uh, and I have Instagram, but I've I've never been good at Instagram. What about Insta Threads? Have you heard about that? I am holding off on that for okay. right now, and the reason I'm holding off on it, I, I I have no problem with additional things, but. I, I'm not on it yet because I've been hearing stories already about people getting blocked, banned for for really arbitrary stuff. That didn't take long. Well, no, it didn't. It was like like a Babylon B. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you know who, who Babylon B is, yes. they, but they're like a satirical website. They got banned in five minutes, and I mean seriously, it took five minutes for them to get banned. And Aww. and what I'm and what I'm hearing is that is that. Um, if if your account gets deleted on threads, or if you have to delete your account on threads, that it also deletes your Instagram account. Okay, that's scary. That's and that's scary. And so I and I don't know one hundred percent if that's verified yet, but I've heard enough of it that I'm cautious. Like I don't want to lose yeah. Instagram. So much for freedom of speech, people. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank God for 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 what Elon Musk is at least trying to do. I'm not going to wholesale endorse every single aspect of his life, but as far as a fight for freedom of speech, dude. I 100% agree with we're you. We're on the same page there. <laughs> Doug, my last question with every guest I have is always, what does America mean to you? America, well, America is obviously home. And I was I was raised in a community that was that was very patriotic. So the idea that that 
patriotism wouldn't be the normal didn't even occur to me until I was an adult. Um, I think that the foundational principles of our country are unique and and in as much as we can cling to those founding documents and founding principles as long as we can cling to the bill of rights i think that there's a good and um i hesitate to say holy mission but there but there's a stay holy because i'm there with you too doug but there but there's something beautiful in in the original intention now that being said I think that loving America means acknowledging warts. Certainly, we have a lot of warts. I would def- I would challenge anyone who who uses that as an excuse to hate our country. I would challenge them to find one country that doesn't have warts in their history, one country that doesn't have some kind of atrocities. Um, so we acknowledge them. I think that's one thing that's unique in in our history is that we acknowledge when we've screwed up and we try to do things about it. Um, I do believe that our government as a whole right now is corrupt and not clinging to the principles. So when people say, how do you feel about America? I, as far as our history and our identity as a people and our, our identity and principles, I'm super patriotic and I love our country. But as far as our government as it is right now, um, it's very problematic. And I don't think that it reflects, I do not think that our government in either party, in either party, reflects our founding principles. And I have very, very little confidence in our leaders. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing your American story with us, Doug. I really appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.